I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. This week on the show, we're doing something a little different, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, We have a bunch of incredible interviews for you. Interviews that we conducted during the course of our show, but for whatever reason, we weren't able to fit them into that particular week's episode. But we knew they were fascinating conversations that you were going to want to hear, so we stored them in our side pocket. And this week, we're pulling them out, and we're playing them for all of you. We're talking to Pete Holmes, who is a hilarious comedian and maybe surprisingly spiritual person, if you haven't read his book or listened to his podcast. Uh, We also have poet Franny Choi stopping by, and then a real musical treat. Uh, We're going to hear Jimmy Harrod and Pink Martini, recorded during a very special show for us uh, back in the late spring of 2019. Uh, First, we're going to start off, though, with Pete. Pete Holmes is a comedian. He's an actor, a producer, a podcaster. Uh, You may know him from his HBO show called Crashing, which was incredible, uh, or his hit podcast, which is called You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. Uh, What happened was Pete was coming through Portland. He was doing an appearance for his new book, which is Comedy Sex God. And I was able to get on stage with him at the Helium Comedy Club in Portland, And we recorded the conversation for our use here on LiveWire. Now, I'd always been a fan of Pete's comedy. It's very funny. But until I read his book, I didn't realize the extent to which our growing up years kind of paralleled each other. Uh, He, like I, was raised in a very evangelical home. Uh, He was one of those high school kids that was trying to do the quote-unquote right thing based on what he was being told at church, but found that to be somewhat challenging. And uh, he's sort of come out the other side and is now a very spiritual person, but maybe not in the most traditional of ways. Uh, I want to mention before we play this interview that this conversation was wide ranging. We talked about all kinds of things, religion, uh, sex, you name it. So we wanted to make sure that you knew that going in. This conversation may not be suitable for all listeners, but for the rest of you, it's a real doozy of a conversation. So uh, take a listen to this. This is my conversation with comedian and author Pete Holmes, recorded live at the Helium Comedy Club in Portland. I want to jump 
into parts of the book, and I guess we can just kind of go in a haphazard yeah, fashion, but you're described sometimes as a Christ-leaning spiritual person. And I knew that you grew up really evangelical. Were you super afraid of the rapture? Yes! I, until recently. Yes. <laughs> I, for, for many years of my life, I went to bed every night thinking, this is going to be the rapture. Yeah. And for some reason, the song that triggered me feeling especially bad was the song Simply Irresistible by Robert Plant. I can't explain what Wait, because it was a sexy video? There was just something about the tone of his voice, and that song must have been popular on the radio at about this time in my life, which, yeah. by the way, I wasn't allowed to listen to non-Christian radio, Ooh, but yeah. I had a system. NCR? Yeah. <laughs> there's NPR, and then there's NCR. We weren't even allowed to listen... Non-Christian radio. We weren't allowed to listen to Amy Grant once she went worldly. Ooh, when she went baby, baby. Baby, baby was a... There was a, a red line for our family. She was so close. She could have just been like, baby, baby, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> My mom tells a story about how she loved the George Harrison song, My Sweet Lord, until he says Harry Krishna at the end. Yeah. And then she was like, nope, not acceptable in this house. I'm out. I was with you up until the last two words. Yeah, that's weird. It's like she's never heard any other Beatles song. Yeah. <laughs> but the rapture, this idea that you're telling kids that the world could end really soon mm -hmm. and in a really violent way, and there was this thing pre-trib and post-trib. Were the Christians, were the good people going to go up to heaven before the tribulation yep. or after the tribulation? Like, yep. were they going to have to go through it? I was rooting hard for before the tribulation myself. Yeah, that's, that's the smart vote. But I just had all of this stuff in my mind, and yes. it's just... I, I, no, that's a part in the book. I would keep an eye out. And my brother read this, and he thought it was really sad. I think it's really funny. But for some reason, I don't know why my brother was only two years older than me, but it just didn't get him. Like, he just skipped it. I think, I'm not joking, I think it might have been the weed. I think he was just like, no. Nah. <laughs> he was just in the back not buying it. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker. That's why the book is filled with all these shame stories. And again, a lot of the people that grew up religious, and maybe even a lot of you that didn't, there's this, like, especially sex shame. There's, like, body shame. The church figured out that, like, we feel bad about our bodies. Even if you're very woke and never had any religious trauma, like, you probably... some. That's why every, Everybody Poops is a book. You know what I'm saying? Like, the first time you were conscious, like, not a baby, and you pooped, and you were like, is this just me? That's why that's a bestseller, is someone had to be like, no, the elephants do it, and the deer do it. And the little baby boys do it. And you're like, thank you. That's still a bestseller. So when you get genitalia involved, like it or not, there might be some shame. And I think early on, the church, in a very show-busy way, were like, well, let's, let's sort of hook into that. And that'll create what Richard Rohr calls a codependent relationship between the congregation and the church. Because you'll have a fresh sin every time. Because it's baked into your physiology. So you'll keep coming back. I don't even say that to put them down so much as just be like, wow, that's, yeah. that's kind of creative and it's horrible. The idea that by being born, by, by showing up on planet Earth, we have already fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, that's it. And that's, that's a, a big point of the book is that like, it's not a flaw in the system. That you, in fact, it is the system. When we say God is love, that love is erotic. By God, I just mean this, by the way. We're not talking about something somewhere else, sometime else. We're just talking about reality. Where am I Jews? Sometimes this gets very Christian skewing. Any Jews or raised Jewish? Wow, Portland. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's in, it's in our, uh, the Christian Bible as well. 
is when Moses asks God what his name is, God says, I am. He says, I am that I am, right? When I was a kid, I thought God was being cheeky, like, like a gangster. He was like, what's my name? I don't worry about it. My name is my name, is my name okay? No more questions. I'm a burning bush. Deal with it, you know? But he's not. Yahweh was just our first understanding of the concept of being. God is being. God is consciousness. And this sounds new age. It's as old age as it gets. It's Old Testament. It's the old one. And, and it predates that. It's just, it's just when this conscious thing thought of the idea of consciousness and, and personalized it and made it into an image so we, that we could talk about it and think about it. But God was just like, I am the quality of I amness. And that's what I'm talking about when I say God. So we could also just say the mystery or we could say this this. And regardless of your religious beliefs, I think we can all relate to the feeling of waking up in this every day, not just when you were born, but just opening your eyes and being like, what? (laughs) Then we all go around just talking about our pants? (laughs) Where'd you get those pants? But some of us are like, no, what? And Ramdas says, it's like, so... Will you explain who Ramdas is for folks that don't know? Ramdas, he was a professor at Harvard, and then they started taking a lot of uh, LSD. (laughs) And this was in the 60s before, you know, people really knew what LSD was. It was new in the West. Uh, he took it. They started exploring it. And then him and Timothy Leary, you know Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary went like the iconoclastic route and Ramdas went the Eastern spiritual route because he wanted to figure out how you could get to those places without psychedelics. Because if you've taken psychedelics, it's, it can be. Sometimes it's just clowns slapping you. <laughs> it's not really what you see. It's that you're seeing with something. Does that make sense? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It could be clowns. It could be Yosemite Sam. It could be completely non-spiritual. You're just recognizing how the equipment works because it goes, oh, you think this is reality? Well, what do you think of this? And you're like, I got to rethink this. And that's a really important thing that happened. So Ramdas says, who we are is consciousness, right? This is called the true self in some of the mystical traditions. You, your true self is what my baby is. My baby is eight months old. She just is isness. She's just one with being. She doesn't have a story yet. She doesn't know that she's a baby. She's extremely present. That's right. She just is presence. She's never not been in the moment because she doesn't have an agenda like we all do. We go around, I, I wear this shirt, I wear yellow. I'm a happy guy. <laughs> and Ramdas says we go around reassuring each other that our costumes are on straight. That's all we do. We just go like, I'll make believe who you think you are if you make believe I am who I think I am. So you go, I'm a laid back guy. Will you reaffirm that? And you're like, yeah, you got those Tevas on, man. You are laid back. You're like, yeah, weed, not whiskey. And you're like, got it, Tyler. (laughs) And then you go to a Tool concert and it's great. But that's not who you really are. What we're saying is the closer you can get to just pure I amness, the closer you are to the mystery or whatever. And it's not about thinking. It's not about believing. Obviously, one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book and do these talks with you guys is because it's not about belonging to a group and it's not about being certain, but the ego has gotten a hold of religion. And when the ego gets a hold of religion, all it turns it into is basically a sports team. It's like, it's us and them. We're right, and you're wrong. And whatever your group is, that's always the group that's going to heaven. Have you noticed that? Yeah. I I remember at some point when I got a little older thinking, what are the chances that these 80 people in Seattle, Washington are the 80 people that have this figured out in the whole history of time? That's right. 
I would perform for you guys 10, well, this would have been 20 years ago. If I came into this club, I would perform for you and silently think that 99% of you are going to hell. That's why I like the guys with the bullhorns that you see sometimes in big cities are like, repent, repent, repent. And I'm like, yes, be as crazy as your beliefs so we can identify you. I wanna know who you are. Don't be like me. Don't be some weird doctor that's like, you have a week to live, but it doesn't end there. And like, you keep that to yourself. Right, because honestly, the guy with the bullhorn is making the rational choice. If you truly if you believe a train is that coming. everybody who you're talking to is going to suffer eternally, you should be doing nothing else day or night That's other right. than trying to witness to them. So when I was a kid and I believed that, what grown-ups had told me, because they had khakis and keys. <laughs> they had khakis and keys and facial hair and money. And I was like, ooh, he must know the secrets of the universe. Why wouldn't I believe him? I say in the book, these are the same people that told me not to swallow hot peppers or not to like, all the, all the good things, like how to be alive in the world. And then they're like, also this. Why wouldn't you believe them? But after I lost my faith, I had more time to be quiet, right? It's one of my favorite Bible verses. We, we'll try not to be too bible but it's like, be still and know that I'm God, right? That's contemplation. That's meditation. That's what I'm saying. If God is I am-ness, you're a piece of that. You're a piece of the mystery. That's why a comedian wanted to write a book about God, because I want to be like, you don't have to have a funny hat to trust your own intuition. You are listening to Livewire from PRI. I am Luke Burbank. Uh, you're listening to my conversation with comedian Pete Holmes, recorded at Helium Comedy Club in Portland in front of a raucous crowd. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but stick around because we have more with Pete coming up in just a minute. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to Fully.com slash Livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash Livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well. And just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your, in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire. I am your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we're doing something kind of different. We're playing you a variety of interviews that we did that didn't fit into any particular show at the time, but we know that you want to hear them, including this chat 
who was recorded at Portland's Helium Comedy Club with comedian, podcaster, and author Pete Holmes. His new book is Comedy, Sex, God. Let's pick things up here. Your journey was, as a young person, uh, you were doing everything you could to serve Jesus because you wanted to do the right thing. Then you kind of lost your faith, and it was like, Jesus doesn't have any role to play in my life. And then you had this big breakthrough where you kind of realized you're like teammates. You're playing in the same game. And it's not a question of Jesus being in charge of you or Jesus not existing, but there's another, there's a different way to relate to the idea of God. That That he's modeling the way that energy works in the world, right? So we spend so much time worshiping Jesus instead of imitating him. But you can imitate any of the symbol systems that you want. We really start to lose the narrative if we start talking about the historical truth of Jesus or if he literally did this or literally did that. It's, It's a story to move you into a place where you can do it to yourself. That's what you have to do. That's what we're saying. So if I'm saying there's your false self, right, which is Steve or Andy or Diane, it's the thing that you go around selling. It's your preferences, it's your likes, it's your clothes, it's your city, it's your sports team, it's your country. It's all just a story. You know this from psychology. It's just a, it's a, it's a mental construct, but it's not who you really are. So what you need to do, that needs to die. And then you resurrect to your own Christ, Christ being the word, another word for what is, and your union with what is, and identifying with your real self. That's where the anxiety goes away. That's where the fear goes away. Anxiety and fear, or peace, let's say the opposite. Peace can't exist in the ego at all. Maybe for five seconds. Maybe the first bite of ice cream, and you go like, everything's great. <laughs> and this is straight Ramdas. You finish the ice cream, and you want a glass of water. And this is how we live our lives, is chasing happiness, when really bliss exists in detaching from the story of the guy that wants the water, and then he drinks the water, then he has to go to the bathroom, then he's bored, then he watches TV, and it's 2019, so he watches nine hours of TV. And then he's tired, so he go, now he has to go to sleep, but then he has to get up, and then he's groggy, so he has coffee. You know what I'm saying? Like, give up. Can I ask you? If you're not happy on the plane to your vacation, the beach isn't going to save you, dumbass. It's not going to save you. The way you are on the plane is how you're going to be on the beach. And the way I am right now is how I'll be when I'm dying. When I'm dying, I don't want to be like, I sure was on TV a lot. (laughs) You think that's going to give you any comfort when your air starts getting thin? I don't mean to be too morbid. Do you really think that's it? So it's, it's learning how to detach from the story. That's where I found. So I don't want you to agree with me. I want you to be free. I want people to be free. But then how do you also remain in life as Pete Holmes has a, had a TV show on HBO? What if I was raptured right now? <laughs> <laughs> because I hear everything that you're saying really resonates with me. And you're describing a way of being that is so much less stressful yeah. than the way that most of us, myself included, are actually operating on a daily basis. And it just sounds like, yes, we should all do that. But then you're somebody who I think is seeking to do that, but you're also very much engaged in the real world. Yeah. How I, lose, do- I lose it all the time. Absolutely. And that's super important to say. I'm not fully there. All you can do is increase your percentage of how often you're in the moment, basically, that you're owning the bliss of being. 
not the bliss that the the stewardess gave you your your peanuts or whatever and now you're happy but just the bliss that you're on a on a plane and i don't mean thinking about bliss how lucky i am to be on an airplane you know the percentage of people that got to fly that is exhausting <laughs> so to to answer your question is like of course i i lose it all the time and then it's all the game of coming back. It's the same as meditating. People don't want to meditate because they're bad at it. I'll let you in on something. Everyone's bad at it. That's what it's about. It's not thinking nothing. It's when you think something, having enough compassion for yourself to not get worked up and just go back. And one of the reasons I like talking about this with you guys isn't because I have the answers and I'm here to give you the answers. It's because in talking about it together, I remember I'm talking to myself. Like if you're like, so I've been flying a lot. So I have all these flying examples. I, I see that there's like a delayed flight. You know, there's like a 20, 30, 45 minute delay. And you see that the suffering doesn't really come from the delay. The suffering comes from the story you tell yourself about the delay, right? We know this, but we just have to practice it and be compassionate with yourself. It's not going to happen the first time your flight is delayed, but maybe the 50th time you'll get to a little bit more equanimity, right? But you, you can watch it. And it starts to become like the best TV show in the world, just kind of the, the smile of the Buddha, just kind of like watching people freak out. And they're going like, Delta, Delta always does this. Yeah. I, pay, I am a medallion member with Delta. Delta, listen to me, Delta is not a thing. That's what we should be talking about in dorm rooms, smoking pot, like, you believe in Delta? Delta is an idea. It's a delayed flight. It's a mechanical error. It's a, it's a deflated front tire that you're gonna want them to fill up. Don't, don't want this to be that. Delta is just a story created to assist you in suffering because you're like, it should be the Delta way. You know what I mean? Or I, medallion status, that's also nothing. This is why we love post-apocalyptic movies. It's like, tell me about your medallion status now. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just ate your cousin. Tell me, what priority group do you board? Well, my cousin was only a silver level. <laughs> That's so how they, we knew they, to eat him. They fed them to the platinum of level. Of course. Members. Of course. You know what I think is so interesting about uh, hearing you talk about this to this group and to the various people that you've talked about this with is that you write in the book about how witnessing was a big part of your life when you were in a more like kind of Judeo-Christian yeah. traditional model. Do you guys like, know what witnessing is? Telling people about it's Jesus. It's your worst nightmare. <laughs> it's when you're on a long car ride and, and the guy driving goes, <laughs> can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And for the briefest of most rational moments in your life, you decide maybe you should roll. <laughs> you should tuck and roll out of the car and take your chances. Well, you did a lot of that while you were growing up and in your teenage years and stuff because, you know, that's what you're uh, told to do as part of that particular Christian movement. And yet here you are, it's many years later, I think you're still witnessing, but you're just, you have a totally different message or a more inclusive message. Right. When I say life is a miracle, it sounds like something Rachel Ray would say while tossing a salad. You know what I mean? It's been ruined. Everything's been ruined. The deepest truth, it's right in front of our face, but it's been ruined to sell salad, to be like, this is the miracle. And it is. It's here and now. And the answer isn't somewhere else. It's learning to be quiet enough to feel it and to disappear into it. I want Pete out of the way. 
I want to be stirred into the cosmos like a, a spoonful of sugar and disappear because it's so tiring to be this. You know what I mean? And to brush your teeth a fucking gen. <laughs> and I know you know what I'm feeling. So how do we stop thinking? How do we be enlightened for 30 seconds? It's not as special, it's not as difficult as, it, as it's made out to be. You can do it just for maybe not your whole life, but you can do it in, you just say, yes, thank you. Look at a flower, sit on your porch. This is Portland, feed your chickens. <laughs> Get in your outback. And don't resist, whatever it is. <laughs> I thought I lost you. <laughs> you, you. You said that you would like to just be stirred into the everythingness like a, like a, a teaspoon of sugar. sugar. Yeah. What's the line between that happening and you just not existing? Well, you do stop existing, and that's a tricky thing. It's very, it, I'm actually, it's fun that we're having fun and we're talking about this and we're laughing. And also at the same time, I'm selling like sort of the last thing your false self wants, which is death. I'm selling death. <laughs> but that spirituality too is die before you die, which again, straight Buddhism, the more we're clinging and attached to life and to our false self, the more we suffer and the more we fear it going away. So there is a great freedom in realizing that nothing's happening and that nothing's really here. And there's something in us, we call it the ego, that's like, I'm gonna make a new flag and I'm gonna put it on the top of a mountain and I'm gonna get a trophy. That's why it was important for me to write about crashing. There's this great Jim Carrey quote, which is smoking. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let me mention, crashing is, was your really great show on HBO. Thank you. Well. <laughs> Thank you. And it was a dream. That's the Jim Carrey quote. He says, I wish everybody could have their dreams come true so they could see that it's not the answer. We don't want to give that up because we don't want to stop playing the game. So there I was at what I thought was the top of the mountain and I was very depressed. I was really in a bad way. And just numb. It wasn't really down in the dumps, but the word I use in the book is a, a malaise. I just, I didn't feel anything. And that was a really scary thing. Did something change for you that allowed you to not have the malaise? Well, what it, the, I think the reason I had the malaise was because I had tasted this spiritual stuff or whatever you want to call it, soul identification. And then I got lazy and I just assumed it would just stay there. Like I've had it, I got a little taste of enlightenment and now I'll do nothing to maintain it. Not to mention that you're getting pretty famous. You're well, presumably was, getting paid a lot of money. There's a lot of things that are not related to the in being enlightened thing that are now taking up your That's exactly attention. right. So I started to believe that more money, more alcohol, more food, desserts for the table, all of that stuff would make me, because it's not really my fault. It's the story that all of us have been sold, that that's the best thing that can happen. So because I had had that sort of taste of mindfulness, and meditation or whatever. And then I stopped doing it and started believing my false self really hard. It was worse because I was homesick for what I just had. So I worked for, on this book for three years and then they printed the wrong galley. The galley is what gets sent out to the press for them to review it. And they sent like the first draft instead of like the 15th draft. Oh. And I'm like, I, I, this is my first book, so I didn't know 
that no one would review it. But listen, <laughs> in my mind, I thought that like the New York Times was getting like a bad book, like a bad version of the book. And I just started feeling real dread, like real panic and anger. And there was nothing I could do. They were sent out. And I had to remember, I wrote it. And I had to remember, and I said, yes, thank you, to that feeling. Wow. You can't control what happens to you. You control how you respond to it. And you control which you is responding to it. The big you goes, yes, here we are, and we're doing it. Literally. Thank you so Pete much. Holmes, everybody. Thank you for being here, guys. I really appreciate it. That is Pete Holmes, recorded live at Portland's Helium Comedy Club, right here on Livewire Radio. Hey, it's Luke. Are you a subscriber to the Livewire newsletter? The newsletter is the best way to stay in the loop on our show, like when we're releasing new podcasts, uh, when we might be recording the show in a city near you. Plus, the newsletter includes awesome photos from our live recordings so you can see what we all looked like when we were making this radio show and podcast. If you would like to sign up, just click on the Stay Informed button on our website over there at livewireradio.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am your host, Luke Burbank. Next up, we're going to talk to poet Franny Choi, who joined Livewire at the Alberta Rose Theater back in June of 2019. Franny is a writer, editor, teacher, self-proclaimed overachiever. And she's got two poetry collections, Floating, Brilliant, Gone, and her latest work, which I was talking to her about, called Soft Science. It takes readers into a world of machines and cyborgs and humans, so let's take a listen to this. It's Franny Choi right here on Livewire. Franny, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, y'all. <laughs> um, I was totally fascinated by this book, Soft Science, but I'm curious, and I hope this isn't an impertinent question right off the top, but how do you recommend, as the person who wrote it, how do you recommend people read this book? Because I read it and I was, I was fascinated. I loved the use of language. I felt like I didn't always know what was going on, but maybe that's not the point. Totally, totally. I mean, I, I think that um, the, the problem is that the way that we're taught how to read poems in school is to read them like a code to crack. Like if you don't get what the thesis statement of the poem is, then you've like gotten a C on the assignment or something, right? But I think that the way that I prefer to think about how to read poems um, is more like encountering a feeling in the poem, encountering the feeling in yourself, and then asking the question like, how did we get here and how do I feel about how we've gotten here? So honestly, if you read, if anybody reads any of my poems and doesn't know what the hell is happening, but just knows that they had a feeling, then great, you A plus on the assignment. Ah, and you actually teach uh, poetry, right? Yes. So, I do. so this is like advice that you're giving to your students as well. So maybe there's at least one generation of people reading poetry from that perspective. Because yeah, I do I think, think so. it's there's this weird thing around poetry for a lot of people where they think it's going to be too 
complicated or to something that doesn't feel like it's for them. And maybe it's because of how we've all been programmed to think about it. Yeah, I mean, and also I think it has to do with the kinds of voices that have been privileged in the classroom, you know, um, for better or for worse. I think maybe for, I don't want to say worse, but maybe for worse, that it's it's been a lot of dead white guys, you know? And, and I think that like, uh, many of the students that are in the classroom are not dead white guys. And so to be able to teach living poets, poets of color, queer and trans poets, femme poets, um, uh, people who come from working class backgrounds, or anyone who comes from the, a similar background as the student population in the room can open up poetry in so many ways. Yeah. Well, speaking of old dead guys, the, uh, <laughs> the touring project comes up a lot in this book. For people who may not be familiar, can you explain what that is exactly and, and why that became such a big component of this book for you? Yeah, so um, the Turing test, for those who are not familiar with that concept, um, is essentially a test to tell computers and humans apart. Basically, uh, you have, a con have conversations with um, computer programs and with humans. If you can't tell who you're talking to, that computer has said to have passed the Turing test, right? Um, and at, for me, as the child of immigrants, um, uh, as a person whose language has been marked as foreign in so many different ways, um, I really related to this concept, you know, I was like, oh yeah, sure, I have also been put to the test um, and have like used my English conversational skills in order to try to convince somebody that they should treat me like a human being, you know? Um, and so uh, I sort of fell in love with the form and ended up writing all these poems that take the form of a Turing test for this book. Um, we're talking to Franny Choi, her latest book is Soft Science. Would you mind reading something from the book? Yeah, sure. I'll read um, the first Turing test poem in the, in the book. What's this called? It's called Turing Test. Okay. <laughs> yes. This is a test to determine if you have consciousness. Do you understand what I am saying? In a bright room, on a bright screen, I watched every mouth duck, duck, roll. I learned to speak from puppets and smoke, orange worms twisted into the army's alphabet, I caught the letters as they fell from my mother's lips. Whirlpool, sword, wolf. I circled countable nouns in my father's papers. Sodium bicarbonate, NBC N1, hippocampus. We stayed up practicing girl, 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 girl until our gums softened. Yes, I can speak your language. I broke that horse myself. Where did you come from? Man comes and puts his hands on artifacts in order to contemplate lineage. You start with what you know, hands, hair, bones, sweat, then move toward what you know you are not, animal, monster, alien, bitch. But some of us are born in orbit. <laughs> so learn to commune with miles of darkness, patterns of dead gods, and quiet, oh, quiet, like you wouldn't believe. Why do you insist on lying? I'm an open book. You can rifle through my pages, undress me anywhere. You can read anything you want. This is how it happened. I was made far away and born here. After all the plants died, after the earth was covered in white, 
I was born among the stars. I was born in a basement. I was born miles beneath the ocean. I am part machine, part starfish, part citrus, part girl, part poltergeist. I rage, and all you see is broken glass, a chair sliding toward the window. Now, what's so hard to believe about that? Wow. Franny Choi, right here on Livewire, reading from Soft Science. Um, assuming this book is somewhat autobiographical, which I guess actually, you know, could be an assumption. Is, are there elements of your life in this book or your experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes people uh, sort of make a distinction between like, oh, the poems where it's like you and the poems where it's like the cyborg speaks or the poems where it's like a persona. And it's, it's really, it's all me, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I learned, I was talking to a different a writer who's a woman named Lauren Groff, and she was saying how there's this thing that happens, particularly when women write stuff, that we assume that if, it's, if a woman shows up anywhere in the book, that it's the woman who wrote it. Like, it's about her. Is that something that happens with your poetry sometimes, when it's maybe something that's not about you? It's hard, it's hard to say, right? Because I think that I don't want to apply my experiences to every woman writer. But for me, all of my poems are about me in some way. That doesn't necessarily mean that like the autobiographical information in the poem relates to what actually happened in my life. But, but even if I'm writing from the perspective of the robot in the film Ex Machina, like where that poem comes from is some part of my life. So, yeah. Uh, do you find that there are things that you can say in poetry and in the written form that you have a hard time saying like to people in real life? You're just talking to them? Oh, yeah, all of it. I mean, real people in front of you are terrifying, you know? It's way better to just, like, talk to, your, talk to Microsoft Word and tell, tell her about your problems, you know? It's way easier. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, this is the thing. is also that, like, in our daily lives, people sort of are looking for the logical answers to things, um, the, the, the ways of answering questions that make sense. And poetry is a space where, you know, somebody could ask... Um, how old are you? And then you could talk about being a starfish who was born in space. And that's like a perfectly legitimate answer. Um, and one that comes, maybe comes from some truth of your life and uh-huh. that people kind of just have to sit and respect that, which is great. Um, one of the pieces in this book, we're talking to Franny Choi about her book, Soft Science. One of the pieces in this book, uh, you took tweets that had been tweeted at you and you ran them through Google Translate (laughs) and then you turned that into a a poem. Can you explain the mechanics of how that worked exactly? And also, why were people tweeting at you? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, the the short answer is that, like, I said something online about, like, how racism was, like, bad or whatever and then people got very upset. Um, It's apparently controversial these days. Whoa. Um, uh, Yeah, and so, I mean, I think it ended up on some sort of, like, white supremacist blog party and then people started targeting me so and you was, started getting a bunch of trolling yeah, basically. yeah i got a bunch of trolls in my mentions um and at first i was like ha 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 like uh ignore the haters whatever um and then realized that it actually really sucked you know to have people um in your mentions talking about how they were going to like you know destroy you or whatever um it's it's not a cute feeling and so but but as a poet I was really fascinated by the language of the, these like terrible racist tweets, you know? I think that the language of 
white supremacist troll Twitter is fascinating. It's awful, but it's fascinating. And so I wanted to engage with that language, but looking at it all day hurt. And so what I ended up doing was putting them through Google Translate into a bunch of languages, then back into English so that they would come out all garbled. And so that I could, I could look at it and engage with this sort of like the material of the text without having it enter my soul, you know? Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what the emotional like journey or experience is for you writing a book like this, because it feels, uh, if I would describe it with one word, I would say visceral. So it's, you're really pouring yourself into this book. Are you just like drained at the end of the process? Like, what is that like for you to make something like this? You know, I, uh, like, yes and no. The, the thing about, like, writing a book, right, is that, like, y- you write it and then, like, a year and a half later, people read it, you know? So, like, there's, a, there's some distance um, from, from this project and it takes, you know, years. But I think that the opportunity to take painful experiences and turn them into objects that are maybe a little bit beautiful, if you're lucky, is such a gift. And it's, it's like, the the safest and most magical way that I know how to engage with the violences of my life. And maybe relatedly to take this kind of like nasty material and then own it and empower it and make it yours and triumph through it. Oh, like, totally. Like to have whatever crap those people spewed at you over Twitter is now like being put into a microphone and sent alongside your name in this beautiful, exciting, yeah, empowered way. Yeah, and then way. people clap for me. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like, they don't clap for them. Yeah. They clap for me. Awesome. Hell yeah. Franny Troy, everyone. The book is Soft Science. You are listening to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. Special episode this week where we're playing you some interviews that we conducted that we couldn't quite fit into other shows, but here they are now, and we think they're definitely worth hearing. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but we will come back and have much more with Franny Choi in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. Hey, special thanks this week to Lisa Fandler, of Vancouver, Washington, and Gretchen Webb of Gresham, Oregon. Lisa and Gretchen are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support us with a donation each month. We're so thankful for that support because without it, uh, we would not have a show. That is the actual truth. So Lisa and Gretchen, thank you so much for making Livewire possible. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, let's pick up our conversation with poet Franny Choi, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. All right, Franny, we know that you know all about uh, machines and cyborgs and Turing tests, but we wanted to see how you do on silly public radio tests. So we're going to do that right now. This is a little segment we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's 
So you use that technique in your book where you sent those horrible tweets through Google Translate and then made poems out of it. We were trying to come up with maybe a more positive version of that experiment. And so we did. We put classic lines of poetry <laughs> through various translations. And then we want you to try to figure out where we ended up with that. So here we go. Question number one. Uh, if we put the famous first line of the poem, This Is Just to Say, by William Carlos Williams, oh, which is, of course, the line is, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox. We put that through Google Translate from English to Russian to Indonesian <laughs> to Icelandic to Urdu and then back to English. Uh -huh. Great. So did that whole process actually uh, uh, render this result? Don't mouth my ice. <laughs> Or, I eat in the refrigerator, or the purple orbs are in my belly. Oh, man. I like the purple orbs are in my belly the most. Yes. So I'm just going to choose that one. It is a great answer. It is not the right one. Yeah, of course But not. it would be the better answer. I eat in the refrigerator. Yeah, it's good. It's good. What's weird is that the plums just left the conversation. As they are wont to do. Yeah. All right, how about this one? Uh, we have translated the famous Langston Hughes line, what happens to a dream deferred? We translated it to quas nuke naj deferred. What language is that? News speak from the George Orwell book, 1984. Klingon from Star Trek. Or droid speak from Star Wars. Oh, man. Quasnuknaj. Yeah, Quasnuknaj deferred. Yeah, that sounds most Klingon to me. You are absolutely right. Yes. It is Klingon. <laughs> what is weird is that deferred is apparently the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Klingon and English. There was a couple yeah. times where Gene Roddenberry was like, I don't know. Yeah. It's deferred. Like, it's like Coca-Cola. You just. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, by the way, uh, there are apparently only a few dozen people in the world who are fluent Klingon speakers. Wow. Although if you have been to a Comic-Con, it seems like more. Yeah. Uh, one of the world's dying languages. Klingon. It really is. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, a witch, Esperanto. Okay. It was a language you know, that was supposed to be a common language for everybody on Earth. Um, so it did not work out as a sort of worldwide language, but we have translated a famous line of poetry into Esperanto, okay? okay? And in Esperanto, it came out as Espero estas la afero con plumage. That is Esperanto. Is that, quoth the raven nevermore by Edgar Allan Poe, to be in love is to touch with a lighter hand by Gwendolyn Brooks, or hope is a thing with feathers by Emily Dickinson? Hope is a thing with feathers. I heard plumage, which seems kind of. You funny. are so right. Oh my god, that's my. I knew you were gonna like talking. this. There you go. Okay, one last one here. If I were to read to you the following line, Ed Trey awfully say because bay uye Ed Trey onwe I may Eamsdre, would that be the Pig Latin translation of a famous poem by William Butler Yeats, uh, by Maya Angelou? or by Carl Sandburg. Again, one more time. Idre oftly say, ikuzbe, uye, edtre, anwe, aime, imsdre. God, I feel like I just watched the, my life flash before my I eyes, know. and it was very confusing. Uh, I guess I'll say Yates. I have no idea what you just said. You're absolutely right. Yes! 
That's tread softly because you tread on my dreams. Great, 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 great. Excellent pig Latin skills. Thank you. Franny Choi, everyone. The book is Soft Science. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. All right, we are almost at the end of this special Livewire episode. But before we go, maybe the most special part of the show, I got to be honest. We had our 15th anniversary show back in June of 2019. And Pink Martini, who I'm sure you've heard of, they're a total genre-crossing, amazing, inimitable thing from Portland. They were kind enough to come be on our 15th anniversary show. And in addition to that, they were kind enough to actually play some extra songs for the audience at Revolution Hall because the audience was so excited that Pink Martini was there. If I'm being honest, I think it was a Pink Martini show where an episode of Livewire sort of broke out. But one of the highlights of the various Pink Martini songs was by a singer who was a little bit new to us. His name is Jimmy Harad. He frequently performs with Pink Martini. And in this song you're about to hear, he completely transforms a Pat Boone classic, of all things, that was originally recorded in 1960. You're probably going to recognize it. Take a listen to this. It's Jimmy Harrod with Pink Martini here on Livewire. This land is ours. This lasts for you, for me. This With your hand 
Right, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Pete Holmes, Franny Choi, Jimmy Harrod, and Pink Martini. Livewire was brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines Fully and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thank you so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Lisa Brown of Gladstone, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can catch our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, please visit us at livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. R.I. Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam. You are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.